Oh, Lord, we are completely dependent upon you. I remember what Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And Lord, I believe that. And so I need you, Lord Jesus, to help me. Give me strength, Lord. Give me, please give me your anointing, the anointing of your Holy Spirit to be able to teach and preach the truth according to your word. Lord, I want your people to be built up in their faith. I want them to go away rejoicing in the resurrection of their Lord knowing all the beautiful things that come to them as a result of the fact that Jesus is risen and alive. So, Lord, would you do those things for your glory and the benefit of your church today? In Jesus' name, amen. We started our series in the book of Romans in January of 2018. So it's been about 15 months now that I've been personally just steeped in this book. Yeah, reading it over and over, studying it, meditating on the truths of this book. So when I knew that Resurrection Day was coming up and that I was going to be the one delivering the word on that day, I naturally thought of the book of Romans. And I thought, well, what does Romans teach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And that was an interesting thought to me because it made me go through the book and look at every place where the resurrection occurs to see what Paul t- teaches in this book to the Romans about the resurrection of Jesus. And as I did that, I discovered six great implications of the resurrection of Christ. And we're going to look at those six today. First one, the resurrection means that Jesus really is the Son of God. And I get that from Romans 1, verses 3 and 4. Romans 1, 3 is speaking about the gospel. And he says there, the gospel is concerning God's son, who is born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who is declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, notice carefully verse 4. It says that, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection declares him to be who he claimed to be when he walked the earth. And let me, let me show what I mean by that. In Luke 22, verse 70, Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin and the high priest. It's on the night before he goes to the cross. And Luke twenty-two seventy 70 says... And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Yes, I am. So there can be, you can't get any clearer than that. Are you the Son of God? Jesus said, Yes, I am the Son of God. But that's not the only time Jesus made the claim that he was the Son of God. Like John 5, 24 and 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, I I put those two verses together because in verse 24, Jesus said, he who hears my word... And then in verse 25, he says, an hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. So it's very obvious to me that when Jesus talks about hearing the voice of the Son of God, he's talking about himself. He who hears my voice, 
So in John 5, 25, Jesus claims to be the Son of God. Or John 10, 36, which says, Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. So it's obvious again that Jesus had made the claim that he was the Son of God. And that's why they said that he was blaspheming. Or John 19, 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. So there was no question in the minds of his persecutors that Jesus had made this claim. And it's true, he did, because we've just read it. John 10, 36, John 5, 25, Luke 22, 70. Over and over, Jesus made the claim that he was the Son of God. And what I found interesting is that he wasn't the only person that made that claim about Jesus. I saw at least 10 other individuals or groups that made the very same claim. And I'm going to give them to you in rapid fire. Number one, the Gerasene demoniac. Remember the guy from Gerasene? Mark 5, 7 says, And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. So this demoniac knew that he was the Son of God. Simon Peter knew it. Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Roman centurion knew it. Matthew 27, 54. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. An unbeliever. John Mark, the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark, knew and believed that Jesus was the Son of God because he begins his Gospel with these words, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Demons knew this truth. Luke 4.41, Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. Demons knew that he was the Son of God. The angel Gabriel knew he was the Son of God. Luke 1.32, he said this to Mary, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Bad angels, demons knew it. Good angels, Gabriel knew it. John the Baptist knew this truth. John 1.34, he said, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Nathaniel knew this truth. John 1.49. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Martha knew this truth. John 11.27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And the Apostle John knew this truth because in his own gospel, in John 20, verse 31, he said, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So it was common knowledge. There were many, many people. Well, first of all, it was common knowledge that Jesus made the claim that he was the Son of God. And there are many people who had embraced that claim and believed that he truly was the Son of God. The truth of Christianity stands or falls on whether that claim is true. If Jesus isn't the Son of God, Christianity falls to the ground. Muslims say that Jesus 
is a great prophet, but he's not the son of God. Jehovah's Witnesses say that he is a God. The great religious systems of the world say that Jesus is a great religious leader, a spiritual leader of the people, but he's not the son of God. The Christian says that Jesus is the son of God and God the son. That he is very God, a very God. He is God become flesh, become human. Now, if Jesus was not the Son of God, you've only got two options left. Either he was lying because he claimed to be, and we've already read that, or he was a lunatic. He was either a deceiving imposter, claiming to be something he knew that wasn't true, so that would be a liar, or he was just nuts. He was, you know, some people just think they're somebody that they're not because they've gone crazy or insane. Either he's insane or he's a liar or he is who he claimed to be. I don't think there's any other options out there. Now, if Jesus was lying, that means he's not a good man. All the people of the world that think he's some great, good religious leader are false and wrong if Jesus wasn't the son of God because he claimed to be that and he would be... De- Deliberately deceiving people, deceiving the masses about himself, that doesn't mean, that's not a good person. That's an evil person, right? It's a wicked person. About 10 years ago, I was in a Bible study and a young person, a teenager there, brought up the question. They said, how do I know which religion is right? You know, because they were being given information about various religions and they didn't know if Christianity was true or if some other religion was true. And of course, today in our pluralistic society, people say, well, all religions are right. Uh, It's not true. All religions are not right. But this, this young man asked me that. And my answer to him was, let's go back to the resurrection of Jesus because I believe that your answer can be found there. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then Christianity is true. Because it means that not only did he rise, but the things that he said before he rose can be trusted. And what did he say before he rose? He said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He said things like, before Abraham was born, I am. Okay? So if Jesus really did rise then we can trust the words that he said. Romans 1, verses 3 and 4, tell us that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. When Jesus walked the earth, he made all kinds of predictions that there was coming a day, not too distant, when he would actually rise from the dead. Now, Ola, can you put that screen up? I just, I didn't want you, if you want to know these scriptures, I'm not going to read them all, but you can jot them down and take a look at them later. And every one of these scriptures, Matthew 12, 16, 20, John 2, John 10, and every one of those, Jesus predicts that he's going to rise from the dead. And then three days after he dies, the tomb is empty. And he appears to his disciples. And he appears to different groups of people for a space of uh, 40 days, and then he ascends to heaven. So here's what I want you to think about. How do, we, 
how do we actually know that Jesus did rise from the dead? What is our faith based on? Well, you can say, well, it's, it's based on the Bible. The Bible says it's true. Okay, and that's true. That is valid. But is there any other basis or, of evidence or proof for our belief in the resurrection of Christ? Okay? He says the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God ministering that truth to you. Okay? I would say that's good. Um, I would add this. In, in a court of law, when, when you're, the judge and the jury are trying to make a decision about who's innocent and who's guilty, it usually comes down to this, the testimony of eyewitnesses, right? Someone actually saw, heard, touched, felt, uh, experienced this person doing that event, and they testify um, with their hand on the Bible saying, I swear this is the truth. And then the jury says, okay, I'll accept that testimony. This man is either guilty or innocent. Do we have any eyewitnesses that actually saw Jesus rise from the dead? We do. Now, not, not alive today, but alive when he rose, right? And those eyewitnesses were known for their upstanding moral character and integrity. And those witnesses went on to be willing to die for the truth that they were preaching. Eleven of the twelve apostles went on to die martyrs. And the, the great truth that they were preaching in the first century was that Jesus is risen. Not only did he die for sin, but then he rose from the dead. The author Paul Little once made this statement, and I think it's, I think it's right on. He said, men will die for what they believe to be true, though it may actually be false. They do not, however, die for what they know is a lie. Right? Does anybody go ahead and, and give their lives for something they know is a lie? It just doesn't happen. So we know that the people of the first century who saw Jesus risen were convinced that he was alive. Otherwise, they wouldn't go on to die as martyrs for something they knew was not true. In 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 6, Paul tells us that there were over 500 people at one time that saw the risen Lord. And he said most of them are still alive, so they could be questioned. Disciples could go and ask them, what did you see? I mean... This wasn't done in a quarter. This is not some myth or fable or fairy tale that we're talking about. This is historical reality. There was a particular day in human history when there was an empty tomb and real people saw Jesus alive from the dead talking to them. They touched him. They ate together. Real people, people that were willing to lay down their lives for that truth. So I'd say that's pretty strong evidence for the belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what does all that mean? It means that if Jesus really did rise from the dead, and if he predicted that he was going to rise from the dead months ahead of time, which is true, that means he's not any ordinary man like everybody else. He is who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God, which is why Romans 1, 4 tells us that. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus is the divine son. He came into the world to redeem sinners. And this proves that Christianity is true and it's not some myth or fable invented by man. We have solid, well-founded historical evidence that gives buttress to our faith. 
Jesus is who he claimed to be. The resurrection is a proof, an evidence of that. Okay, number two. The book of Romans teaches that the resurrection means Jesus paid for our justification in full. And we get that from Romans 4.25, which says, He was delivered over because of our transgressions. He was raised because of our justification. This is the last part I want you to meditate on. He was raised because of our justification. Now that can be confusing. I think it was confusing to me for quite some time. He was raised because of our justification. Well, I take that to mean he was raised because the full payment price for our justification had been paid. And so there's no reason for him to stay in the grave any longer. In other words, let me try to put it like this. Jesus fully paid for our forgiveness. He died for the sins that killed him. But since he had fully atoned for those sins that killed him, there's no reason for him to remain dead anymore. Are you, are you following that or should I try to another angle here? <laughs> um, since he has fully atoned for sin, there's no reason for him to remain dead. It would be unjust for God to keep him in the grave because sin has been dealt with forever. Amen. The full purchase price has been paid. Amen. Sin has been uh, conquered by the risen Christ. And so he rose as proof that the Father accepted his sacrifice for our sin. In fact, Acts 2.24 says it was, it was impossible for the grave to hold him. It proves that he was successful in purchasing our justification. Now, I don't know if you realize how important that is, but think about it. If, if Jesus never rose from the dead, you would always wonder, how can I be really sure that when he died on that cross, he really did take away my sin? You know, it's great. It's, it's great that the Bible says that, but you might be left with this nagging doubt but God has decided he didn't want there to be any nagging doubt. And so to remove any doubt from his people, he provides this piece of evidence, the resurrection from the dead, as proof God accepted Jesus. There's no reason for him to stay there because the full payment price has been paid. It is finished. And so he rises as proof of that. So my hope of forgiveness is not just a wish or a dream. It's based on something that happened in history on a real day in history. That's the second implication of the resurrection from the book of Romans. We can be sure that we are forgiven. Okay, number three. The resurrection means we can walk in newness of life. This is Jerome's sermon. <laughs> this is Romans 6, 4, which says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Okay, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, there's some corresponding relationship between Jesus being raised from the dead by the glory of the Father and us walking in newness of life. There's a relationship between those two truths. Now, how does that work? 
Well, Romans 6 is all about our union to Christ. Romans 6 tells us that we are in Him. It tells us that because we are in Christ, everything that Jesus accomplished for His church uh, is put to our account, you could say. When He died, verse 6 says that our our old self was crucified with Him. When He was buried... Verse 4 says, we were buried with him. When he was raised, we were raised with him. Okay, because we're united to him, all that he does has an effect in our lives. So, verse 4 tells us, as he was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus' resurrection is duplicated in our lives. But the interesting thing is that it's duplicated in stages. There's two stages to this resurrection. Right now, we experience a spiritual resurrection. It happens in our soul, the inside of us. And when Christ returns, we're going to experience a bodily resurrection. The whole person will be complete and glorified. So the first installment happens now. And praise God, if you've been born again, you've experienced the first installment. The soul has been raised from the dead. That's why everything becomes new. Behold, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have become new. The old things have passed away. And as I thought of that verse, I was thinking about some new believers in our own church and how if I had met them a year ago, I I wouldn't have been meeting the same person. Yeah, they look the same on the outside, but they're different on the inside. (laughs) That's a miracle of the new birth. Right, brother? (laughs) And Sister Josie, wherever she's at, it's beautiful to see people coming to faith, coming to love the Lord. So, yeah, what this means, this newness of life means that there's a brand new life that we can experience right now. And it means that God gives you a new heart. You have new desires, new attitudes, new values. Uh, Your thoughts become different. Your actions your words, everything starts changing because the Holy Spirit takes up residence within, changes the heart, makes you new, gives you a new nature. It's like coming alive from the dead, only it's not on the outside, it's on the inside. Praise God. There's this foreign, alien, divine life that invades us, comes into us, makes us new. And you, folks, you'll never be the same. So my question to you is, are you enjoying this newness of life today? Amen. It's yours. And, you know, I've, I've been a Christian now since, um, I think it was 1979. So that's 40 years ago. But even after 40 years, you can enjoy newness of life. Can you say the same thing? Amen. Debbie's been saved about the same time I have. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Can others see this newness of life in you? They ought to be able to see it if it's really there. Okay, let's go on to the fourth implication of the resurrection from the book of Romans. The resurrection means that we can bear fruit for God. And that comes to us from Romans 7, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another 
to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Okay, verse 4 is describing the converted person. Verse 5 is describing an unconverted person. The expression he uses for an unconverted person is someone who's in the flesh. That's a lost man. But that's not true of the Christian. The Christian is in verse 4. And Paul tells us that he died to the law through the body of Christ. In other words, he was joined to Christ. And when Christ died, he died with him. And when he died, he not only died to sin, he died to the law. That's on the other side. That's in the past. Those There's been a cleavage there. And the reason that he had to die to the law was so that he would be joined to another. You see, you can only be married to one person at a time. We were married to the law when we were lost. We had we had to die so that we could leave that marriage to the law and be married to Jesus Christ, be joined to him. And this tells us that we were joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that, here's the whole purpose behind it, we might bear fruit for God. In other words, we couldn't do, we couldn't bear fruit for God while we were married to the law. And he explains that in verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, while we were married to the law, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for what? Death. You can either bear fruit for God or bear fruit for death. The lost man, all he can really do is bear fruit for death because the law is at work in him, arousing sinful passions. He needed to die with Christ so that he could be joined with the resurrected Christ and have his life working through him so now that he, he can bear fruit for God. So this is one of the great blessings of the resurrection. When you are joined to him who is raised from the dead, you can now bear spiritual fruit. So only Jesus can really bear fruit for God. And so that's why we need to be joined to him so that he flowing through us bears his spiritual fruit. The only way to stop bearing fruit for death and start bearing fruit for God is to be joined to Christ, the risen Christ. See, if I was a branch on a fig tree and I didn't want to bear figs and I decided I want to bear grapes, well, something's got to happen. <laughs> I've got to get off, off of that old fig tree somehow. Someone's got to snip me off and attach me to the grapevine. And then I can start bearing grapevine or grapes. But I can never bear grapes as long as I'm a branch on a fig tree. And so God had to snip you off of Adam and he had to engraft you into Christ. Because now that you're connected to Christ, his power, his life flows through you, producing his fruit. It's fruit for God. And let's talk about what it means to bear fruit for God. What I mean, what I believe the Bible means by that is that we display the attitudes, the words, the actions that glorify God. It's, it's what Jesus, it's the kind of life Jesus lived, but now he's living it through us by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so his mercy, to some extent, shines through you as a disciple of his. And his grace, you show grace to others. You show forgiveness. You, you have kindness, generosity, 
um, the, the character and the attributes of God begin to flow through you as the Spirit of God is working. And fruit is born. Actions and words and attitudes all come forth from you. So my question today is, do you see fruit for God in your life? Is there some fruit? Do you see attitudes, actions, words that wouldn't come from your mouth if you didn't love Jesus? Isn't that beautiful to think, yeah, I can see some of that fruit. There is some of that fruit coming forth from me. Now, it's not because you're so great. It's because the Spirit lives in you, and He's producing that fruit. You know, yeah, all glory to God on that. Absolutely. Is your thought life being purified? Are your desires being transformed? Do you love what He loves more and more? Do you love what you once hated? And do you hate what you once loved? Those are indications of fruit. Fruit for God. Praise the Lord. There's another implication here. And that is, number five, the resurrection means our mortal bodies will be raised. And that comes to us from Romans 8, verse 11. Paul says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now think about what he's saying there. The same Spirit that dwelt in the man Jesus for 33 years when He lived on the earth, the very same Spirit dwells inside of you. (laughs) It's mind-blowing to really consider that. It was... God, who raised Jesus from the dead, but it says he did it through his spirit. And if the very same spirit is in you that was in Jesus, then that spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, Paul is saying, is also going to raise your mortal body from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus is a guarantee that your body is going to be raised. Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. This is a guarantee for the Christian. One of the things that I see as I meditate on verse 11 is that we are not complete without a body. Sometimes we get the erroneous idea that the body doesn't matter, that all that matters is your soul, but that is not true because we will not be fully delivered from the effects of the fall until our body is redeemed. If the body didn't matter, God wouldn't raise it from the dead. We will not be complete people without a body. An interim period, theologians refer to this as the interim state. It happens from the moment of your death till the second coming of Christ. There'll be a period of time where the saints will not have a body. But it's only an interim, it's a temporary period. It's a sort of a waiting period. There's going to be a culmination, a climax leading up to this second coming of Jesus Christ when he is going to bring us, our spirits, back with him. And then he's going to raise up our bodies from the dead and reunite us to those bodies. And we will dwell with the risen Jesus and his glorified body on a new earth forever. And we will not be complete, really complete as whole people until that final resurrection. 
Uh, in fact, let's take a look at a text in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13 and 14. Paul says, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Hear that? It's not just that your body is for the Lord. The Lord is for the body. In other words, God values the body that he has made for you. And then he goes on in verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. So the Lord is for the body. Don't, don't fall into this error of thinking it's only important that your soul is redeemed. No, it's important that your body's going to be redeemed as well. The fall affected our entire person, body, soul, and spirit. How did the fall affect our bodies? Anybody know? Was that? Yeah, yeah. That's right. There's, there's aging, there's sicknesses, there's weakness, right, of the body, and then there's ultimately death. I, there's no indication in the Bible that if Adam had never sinned, that his body would have died. From everything we can see from Scripture, as long as he walked with the Lord in righteousness, he would have lived forever. But as soon as he died, or sinned, um, God said to him, the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Well, the seeds of death were planted from that very day, and it eventually led to his physical death. So his body became mortal when he sinned. The fall brought into this world people who have mortal bodies, bodies that will perish, that will die. Our soul was affected. Our body was affected. Um, my body was affected by Adam's sin. But my body's also going to be affected by Christ's righteousness. What Adam did affected my body. It caused my body to be mortal and die. But what Christ did is going to cause my body to be raised. It's not God's will that we exist forever as disembodied spirits. That's not his will for us. So here's the upshot of all this. You and I are going to have perfect bodies one day. Amen. <laughs> so those of you who are in pain and have to deal with disabilities or fatigue or whatever the issues are, this is only temporary. We deal with this during this brief earthly life. There's coming a day when we're going to have a beautiful, wonderful, glorious body. Um, and you say, well, okay, what's that body going to be like? Well... We have a, a glimpse in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44. There's four adjectives here that describe what our body will be like then. Paul says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. There's our first one. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. There's our second word. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. 
It has raised a spiritual body. Now, I don't really know what a spiritual body is. I don't think that means that it doesn't have physicality to it. I don't know. Maybe you guys can explain what a spiritual body is. But anyway, these are the four words he uses. Imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. Those are the characteristics that your new body is going to have. Thank God. There's coming an end of human suffering. And there's coming a glorious new day of worship of the Son of Man. Okay, let's look at the final implication. Number six. The resurrection means that Christ now is interceding for us. We get that from Romans 8, verse 34. Paul says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Now, Romans 8.34 gives us a logical sequence. Jesus died. Jesus was raised. Jesus ascended to God's right hand. Jesus intercedes. Do you see that if the resurrection had not happened, his intercession for us also would not have happened? So one of the implications of the resurrection is we have a high priest today who's interceding for us. It flows forth from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is a truth, I think, that we don't really think about very much. It doesn't come out in our prayers very often. We don't mention it to each other that often. But it's a huge blessing, really, in the Christian life to know that you have a high priest who intercedes for you. How many of Jesus' intercessions do you think God is going to answer? All of them. (laughs) That's what I think. All of them. And do you know he prays for you? He prays for his church? We have an example of that kind of prayer in John 17. And rather than read the whole chapter, I'll just, I read it and I looked for the kinds of things that he prays for his people about. And I saw four different things. He prays that the Father will keep them. He prays the Father will unify them. He prays the Father will sanctify them. And he prays the Father will glorify them. And if John 17 really is a specimen of Jesus' high priestly prayer for us today, then the Father's praying for you and he's saying, I mean, Jesus is praying to the Father and he's saying, Father, keep them. If Jesus is praying for you, that God would keep you, doesn't that buttress your faith and give you comfort in the midst of trial and, you know, the storms of life come against you and you think, can I make it, Lord? Well, Jesus is praying for me. Jesus intercedes for me. He prays that we would be unified with other believers. Praise God. He prays that we will be sanctified through the truth, the word of truth. He prays that one day we will see him as he is and we will be glorified together with him. We have a high priest, folks. We have an intercessor at God's right hand who pleads our case and he takes the merits of what he's accomplished for us and he applies those merits, and he pleads on our behalf that God will bring us safely home to see Jesus Christ glorified. Hebrews 7.25 puts it like this. Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, I think maybe... Maybe my theology was not fully informed because I have always 
emphasize the finished work of Christ at the cross as the absolute basis for my salvation. And there is a sense in which, yeah, the work is finished. Jesus did it all at the cross. But this verse tells me he's able to save forever because he always lives to make intercession for them. There seems to be some aspect of our salvation that is due the intercessory work of Christ. I mean, unless I'm reading this totally wrong. But is that what is that what it sounds like to you? Uh, Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him because or since he always lives to make intercession for them. So yes, he died for our our sins to save us through his work on the cross, but then he now lives to bring that salvation into full fruition. He always lives. He always intercedes for us to bring us home to to Christ. That's the sixth implication. The resurrection means that Christ right now intercedes for us. So let's back up and let's review these. Jesus really is who he claimed to be. He's the Son of God. God the Son. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Christianity is true. (laughs) We can believe in Jesus with solid evidence to support us. We can bank our souls on Jesus Christ because the resurrection proves that he was who he claimed to be and the things that he said during his life are true statements. So are you banking your soul on Jesus? Do you believe he is who he said that he was? Two, he paid for your forgiveness and justification in full, and it was proved by the resurrection from the dead. If that's really true, that should give us greater joy than just about anything else we can think of. Because we don't have to wonder whether our sins are gone. The resurrection proves that they stayed in the tomb. He came out, they stayed there. (laughs) Are you rejoicing in the great truth that your sins are forgiven? Number three, right now, today, we can walk in newness of life. Every single day, we have this new, new life that he's given to us. Your life and my life can be a wonderful, beautiful thing for people to observe because they see this isn't Brian's old life. Something happened to that guy. <laughs> he lives a whole different kind of life now. Are you walking in newness of life? Four, we can bear fruit for God. Rather than bearing fruit for death, it's possible now through the Spirit of God indwelling us to bear a new kind of fruit, a a kind of fruit that brings glory to God. Is your life bearing fruit for God? Five, our mortal bodies will be raised from the dead. Are you looking forward to the resurrection? (laughs) It's coming. It's coming. We don't have to wonder about that. And six, Jesus Christ is interceding for you if you're a Christian. Wow, what a wonderful thing to know we have an advocate, someone at God's right hand pleading our case. That brings comfort to me. I mean, sometimes my faith isn't that strong. I, my faith goes up, but it goes down. But even when I've got little faith, I've got, I've got a Savior who's at the right hand of God, and 
he he embraces me he 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 says he's mine and father keep him keep him lord and god's going to answer that prayer so do you believe that do you believe you have an intercessor my friends resurrection day is a wonderful time to let these great truths just wash over you they're all taught to us in the book of romans paul wanted the romans to know these truths and he wants us to know these truths today Let's let the Holy Spirit just work them into our lives. Amen. Father, thank you for teaching us again the glorious reality of your resurrection and what it means to us. We love you, Lord. Be glorified today in Jesus' name. Amen.